the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The views and opinions expressed by Rob Black and his guests are not necessarily those of the Wall Street Business Network, this station, its management, owners, or advertisers, and should not be construed as legal, tax, or investment advice. Always consult with the appropriate advisor before making any investment or financial planning decision. Insightful. Informative. Irreverent. We're ready. The Wall Street Business Network presents Rob Black and Your Money, your source for breaking news, market updates, and successful investment strategies for the 21st century. Sounds like a great program. Getting you to retirement in today's market. So let's get on with the show. Taxes, family finances, insurance, the economy, technology, media, and entertainment. Rob is talking about it with you at 800 516 1220. So call in, we'll chat and uh, have some fun. Now, to start your day with the latest news and market commentary, here's Rob Black on the Wall Street Business Network. I'm Rob Black, talking all things financial money, investing, and more. Show dedicated to getting into retirement, whether you're 20 years old, 30 years old, hot and sexy, young, hot young thing. Whether you're 40s and starting to feel your age, and 50s, you're definitely feeling your age. This is a show about 60 to 100. But it's also about how to, to, to like navigate the, the first 40 years of accumulating wealth versus the last 40 years of managing it. And one of the biggest decisions you're going to make is you know, your job and your career and your education and how much potential income you make. If you make $100,000 a year, that's what, a million dollars in 10 years? That's... $4 million over 40 years. So your potential savings is $4 million, unless your savings are earning money and, and growing in the stock market or earning money or earning value in the real estate market. You'll have to point in your life where you're able to say, okay, I'm going to say, okay, I only make $4 million in the 40 years, so I'm going to put 10% down on a house and I'm going to put, I'm going to live in it. So that's part of how I'm going to save some money. I'm going to have the nest egg be my my home, my piggy bank. But then you'll say, you know, you also have to save outside of the home. Um, can't put all your eggs in one basket. It's just not a good idea. And then you'll say, hey, I'm going to get an investment property. And like last night I gave a speech where um, a woman who had worked at basically a high-end bank, she said, you know, a lot of our wealthier clients had real estate. I'm like, sure. And I get it. You see that. You see someone come in and say, I want to get a 30-year mortgage. You don't see real estate being owned in their stock portfolios, but yet you can. There's things called real estate investment trusts, which means you can own office properties or malls or single-family dwellings. You can own apartment buildings, all in what are called REITs. And REITs pay 90% of their profits that are professionally managed back to you. So not only do you get the appreciation of the property, but you also get the income that it's coming from the property and you get the professional management. So I, my argument was, do you really want to be in the, in the business of like having an apartment building? That's a lot of work. Do you really want to be in the business of having a renter? I've had some great renters. I've had my last renter stayed with me five years. She was awesome. The renter before that, not so great. Um, fecal matter left on the walls, bottom line. Um, and a lot of weed, lots and lots of weed. So anyway, um, that's part of you know what we're talking about. Um, if you have questions today, drop me an email, rob at robblackshow.com. It's rob at robblackshow.com. Let's bring in Tony Mendez, Bay Area Loan Source. Hi, Rob. Um, yeah, in your world, because you're doing a lending type of scenario, um, you're obviously lending into the real estate market, and you see uh, a lot of people come to you try to get pre-approval. You get them pre-approval, but you probably get 10 people asking for a pre-approval for one house that's out there. I've had it happen. Uh, there's a lot of people yeah. chasing very little inventory. What do you do in a low inventory scenario? Well, you know, it's a team effort uh, with a good realtor um, and the loan agent, and that really does lend to a very successful transaction if you have that good communication and, and the, the realtor understands that, um, you know, this type of market, there's a likelihood that you're going to pay over asking price over appraised value. 
uh, more importantly, over appraised value. Um, you know, those, there's some cases where I've seen home prices go 15, 20% over asking price and then over appraised value. And what that does is creates a different down payment scenario. So if, if, if you are a first time home buyer or a repeat buyer and you're only working with 10, 20, 30%, then you, if you're paying 15% over appraised value, now your down payment represents less, and you have to find out, you know, strategies in order to make that work. Um, FHA and and uh, Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac only go to 625,000, and it's crazy that I even say that. Uh, that's that's a challenge in the Bay Area, but a lot of homes are 800,000, and 10% down on a 800,000 dollar house doesn't get you a conforming loan. You're in jumbo now, and so you have to look at other strategies. So. Um, working with a scenario like that, Rob, with low inventory uh, means that you are going to have to compete. You are going to have to have options um, available to you, but not just on, hey, I have this down payment. I'm willing to go to this price. I, I accept this kind of payment, but what o- lending options are there? Uh, and uh, luckily, there are lenders that go up to 90%. You can get one loan, even a jumbo loan, up to 90%. The rate's not that good, and you pay mortgage insurance. There are alternatives like getting a first and second loan. A lot of people are staying conforming at that 625 level and then adding uh, you know, another 10% on top of that. Uh, so we're lucky to have, even though the guidelines are tight, we're lucky to have some uh, aggressive lenders doing those kind of options. But going back to your point, if you don't have these options, working with a good realtor and, and them understanding that these scenarios do happen, you're going to be putting 6 to 10 to 15, 20 offers in, and then eventually figuring out that what you've been trying to do isn't working. How about the scenario of multiple offers? Because I think that's a nightmare for people. Put your best foot forward. What does that mean? That's so cliche, I want to punch you right now. I I know it is. And and what that means to a a buyer that says, oh, what is, uh, you know, I've been trying to get a house. I can't get an offer accepted. Um, Well, maybe you're looking a little bit too far. Uh, you, you, if you're looking at a $600,000 house, you're pre-approved for 600000 you might be, need to be looking at a $500,000 house because you're looking at multiple offers, over asking price, uh, a kind of a blind auction, so to speak, uh, on that property. And you're going to find somebody who's going to put their best foot forward and get that offer accepted. I've seen cases where people have gone two, three, four dollars $400,000 over without ever knowing that they could have only put maybe $10,000 more. Uh, and that's what this kind of market is creating. So put out what you can afford and hope that you get the house. And I think that I have a new slogan that says you know, your home is worth what somebody can afford. And I think we still have a little bit of room to move in home prices because of that. Uh, affordability still is pretty good here in the Bay Area. When the scenario has the multiple offers, how do they interact with you? Because they came to you and they said, we need 600000 And now like, uh-oh, we need 700000 um, in, in most cases, I'm going back and forth with the realtor, and they're asking for different um, uh, approval letters with different amounts so that they can um, counter. Uh, they, they definitely want to know the max on how much that borrower can, can go to. Um, and, and really, that's the first discussion I have with the realtor is this is their max. And, and I wouldn't recommend going after a house that's at their max because they're going to end up spending more and they can't go any higher. I've, I've had, ar- not arguments, but you know, deep discussions with realtors to say, well, why are you giving this pre-approval letter for this person looking at a $700,000? They're pre-approved for it. Well, that's what they're pre-approved. That's their max. Um, so you need to look at something a little bit lower. So realtors are are starting to figure this out as well, that uh, some people are pushing their, their maximum debt ratio limits. It's Tony Mendez with BayAreaLoanSource.com. It's BayAreaLoanSource.com. Let's talk about some other scenarios of the no contingencies. How does that work into your world? Wow. Um, no contingencies. A lot of sellers are looking at, multiple, again, multiple offers, and some of those are going to be cash. And then you have a somebody has a loan. Um, and on the contract, you're going to have basically an out, an escape clause, and that would be your loan contingency. If you don't get the loan approved within a certain period of time, you can back out of the contract. Or if the appraised value doesn't come in, uh, at what you expect, then you can get out of the contract. Um, and the last thing a seller wants to see is some way that you can get out of the contract. So they're essentially looking at offers that only that have no contingencies tied to them. In a lot of cases, that that means no inspection, meaning that you're basically buying this house as is and with whatever value comes in and at whatever price we agree on. So it's a little it's a little tough to swallow for a first time home buyer, but that's the reality of what we're seeing in the Bay Area. 
You can find Tony. Email him, Tony at com. You can find me at robblack.com. That's robblack.com. My Facebook page is cron4robblack. That's K-R-O-N 4 Rob Black. My YouTube page is Rob Black Show. My Twitter, Rob Black Show. Black talking all things financial money investing and more. When you start looking at the best states to retire in, this is important. Um, California doesn't have really an estate tax when you die, so when you die, you're you know you keep more of the money. Other states do. California though has a very high sales tax, so when you're alive, you're paying a lot of money to live on food, on gasoline, on cars. Wyoming is a state that it only takes about $40,000 a year to live in retirement. This is important because living in retirement means health care, it means taxes, it means food. Kansas uh, ups it up to about $44,000. Then the next best state, Iowa, and these are improving. Um, Hawaii surprisingly comes on the list of best states to retire in. It takes about $66,000, but the amenities of living on the big island are pretty nice. now, obviously, it's one of the most expensive areas in the world to live, but it doesn't really translate into senior citizen expensive. You're not staying at resorts. Um, the poverty rate for people 65 plus is 7.4%. That's well below the rate of 9.4%. That's only going to go higher. Um, so the Aloha state actually makes it 33% above the U.S. cost of living on average, and yet you know, it's a paradise, and that paradise is expensive. Um, Arizona makes a list of one of the best states to live in. Cost you about $43,600 in retirement to feed yourself and fund yourself for about a year. Um, lots of hikes and things like that. Um, social Security benefits. The state exempts taxes on Social Security benefits. Um, you won't face an inheritance. You won't face an inheritance tax. You won't face an estate tax. So those are some of the best states to potentially live in in retirement. Of course, we all know about Florida. And why is Florida so attractive? And like, why does it do so well in a list like this? It's large part because of the cost of living and the taxes. It takes about $45,000 a year to live in Florida in retirement. Uh, nearly 3.4 million older residents can't be wrong. Florida's famous for its retiree haven status. It has no state income tax, no estate tax, or no inheritance tax. It doesn't tax Social Security or other retirement income. The state is packed with a lot of good, affordable options from Fort Myers to Sarasota to Tampa. There's baseball games. There's hospitals. There's things along those lines. Now, one of the worst states to retire in is something like um, New Mexico. Social Security benefits are subject to tax, though at least some of the income can be included in an exemption. For every 100,000 residents in New Mexico, there's 3,700 property crimes, including burglary and car theft, 613 violent crimes, such as rape and murder. Um, so if you're in the Southwest, you want to go with Arizona, not New Mexico. And that's not like the biggest endorsement of New Mexico, is it? The state of California comes in the second worst state possibly to retire in. Um, it's one of the least tax-friendly states for retirees. Except for Social Security benefits, retirement income is fully taxed, and California imposes the highest state income tax in the nation at 13.3%. That's the top rate. The current sales tax of at least 7.5%, as high as 10% in some cities, um, is additional levies. The property tax, yeah, you get Prop 13, but it still adds up. Um, there's a lot of parcel taxes that are thrown in election time, so it's a very expensive um, place to live. costs you about $60,000 per year uh, to live in California in retirement. Now, again, states that were good to live in, about 40000 42000 43000 I say that you need to get a million dollars of assets so that you can pay yourself $40,000 a year. 
So if you're thinking California, you're going to need more. And if you're thinking two people, you're going to need twice as much. Not twice as much, but you're starting to see uh, where that number lies and why I go there. Tony Mendez, BayAreaLoanSource.com. Rob? Um, your parents, I know your parents personally, uh, they made a wise decision by choosing where to retire when they did, where they did, um, as far as tax-friendly and senior-citizen-friendly. Yeah, and they, they'd owned property there before, so they knew the city. Uh, we're speaking of Reno. Um, they liked the amenities, and th- they were kind of stuck in the middle of a uh, family uh, across the, the west, um, all the way down to L.A., all the way to Seattle. So it was kind of right in the middle, and they got a nice little resort up on the hill, Tahoe. So worked out. Some casinos that have a good restaurants. Um, if you could stay out of the casino, you'll be okay. <laughs> restaurants are pretty good. But he still throws down 20 bucks every time he goes. Yeah. Well, he's got a good pension, and that, that helps enormously. Yeah. I think he just hopes to get that free dinner. You know, 20 bucks turns to 40 bucks, and next thing you know, you have a $20 steak. Yeah. I've had a lot of free dinners, but I end up in the hole after the dinner. <laughs> so it's like, woo, let's get a big steak. And you try to make up with a couple of Jack Daniels, and but that never helps. That's where they get you. Yep. So it's the alcohol that they serve free. No, they 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 sold their house in Virginia. They they were sick of the rat race. They did, they knew that Virginia was not where they wanted to retire, and they did a lot of research. They looked at places like Arizona, New Mexico, um, Oregon, uh, and found Reno. They they just it just had everything they wanted. Um, of course, they they sold in 2006 near the peak, and they bought near the peak, and they're still trying to get back to their home value. But for my dad, he carries a small mortgage. It wasn't a large concern that his value was going up or down because his payment didn't move. In fact, he was able to refinance um, a couple times lower. I think he's down to like 3.5 or something like that. So, um, you know, for a senior, uh, it, it couldn't be any better for him to be in retirement right now. The stock market's up. He has a great interest rate. His home value is starting to come up, and he's in this town that he likes. So I'm pretty happy that he's happy. And he has a good view. Yeah, it's a nice home, and uh, the weather's amenable, so not a lot of snow. Yeah, they get the weird weather. It's, they do get some weird weather. Yeah, it's pretty windy. Like the first time I drove to Reno, the speed limit signs, I was wondering why they were bending, but they're on springs because uh, there's so much wind, they would break if they were a solid um, post. So they were just bending back and forth, and it just kind of blew my mind that there was so much wind. As Barry, a mortgage intended. lender... Do you see a lot of people um, getting their retirement homes through you? Um, I would imagine not. Not not necessarily, but we have seen more people. I see more people that are looking to take cash out of their property to buy more investment property um, in the state. Uh, I've seen a lot of people take, and I, I know there's people even on this station that are saying cash out here and buy elsewhere, and it may or may not have worked out for them. I like being able to feel and touch my investment properties, but... I still think it's a good time with interest rate when you start thinking about buying a property and I mean, you just went through a whole list of places, good places to buy, buy now, turn it into a rental, and then eventually move into it um, before home prices can you know go up or interest rates go up one or the other, um, or have somebody pay down some equity for you. And then when you move into the house, refinance it. There's some definite strategies that people can use in the Bay Area while they have good equity here to get into property that they could potentially retire into. It's interesting that you talked about taking money out of a home. Um, I find that wealthy people do that. I find that people who are struggling get by don't. And that's the difference between wealthy people and people who are struggling. I have a friend, a neighbor friend, where she wants to take money out of the house and use it. He absolutely does not. And I'm like, in this relationship, you're going to be the one who would end up wealthier, and he's going to be the guy who ends up more safe and content. I'm Rob Black, talking all things financial. You can find Tony, Tony at BayAreaLoanSource.com. His email. You can find me online at RobBlack.com. That's RobBlack.com.
When you think chocolate, you think chocolate Easter bunnies. You don't think super high quality chocolate with the Easter bunny. When you think chocolate, you think Hershey's in your childhood, Hershey bars and how amazing they were and magical. You get a little bit older and you're like, hmm, Schaffenberger, high-end chocolate. Let's talk chocolate with Jessica Ferger. Jessica, how are you? Good morning. Good morning. Good. How are you? Tell us a little bit about what you do and who you do it for. Um, Well, I'm a staff writer at Newsweek, and I primarily cover health and science. And obviously, one of the big things in health is food, and the food we eat um, is changing and very impacted by um, technology. Um, So the story that I've written is about the science behind chocolate and how the industry is using science, particularly genetic analysis, to improve the quality of chocolate. And when you're talking genetic analysis, you're talking about on the on the chocolate itself, on the cocoa. Um, on the well, well, cocoa and chocolate is made from um, the cacao fruit. So, and cacao is grown in um, uh, uh, Latin America and South America, in Africa and Hawaii. Um, there's one kind of cacao tree, but there's many different types. There's many varieties, and the industry up until now has been mostly concerned with propagating trees that yield a lot of crop and that are disease and uh, drought resistant um, because there's obviously a huge demand for chocolate. Um, and as a result, the quality has really suffered. And the genetic research is trying to get some of the um, qualities to stand out more on high-end flavors? Yeah, so the the um, initiative that I wrote about, it's um, a partnership between the fine chocolates industry and the USDA's Agricultural Research Services. And what they're doing is they're using genotyping to identify the fine flavored cacaos in the world. Genotyping has been used by the industry, such as Hershey's and Lint, um, but primarily to, to find the trees that would be the, 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 most, the trees that would produce the most crop. Um, so the initiative is to identify the, the heirloom cacaos and with the hopes that um, first that the industry can um, start to produce chocolate that's of higher quality um, and also to encourage farmers to um, sustain these, these better crops. You start off your article in Newsweek, and one of your buzzwords, you bring up the buzzwords, artisanal, small batch, fair trade. Then your next sentence is you're basically calling them a sham. Um, why do you go that direction, or wh- what do we need to know about that? Um, well, I think it, it goes back to quality. One of, the, um, one of the trends we're seeing right now in fine chocolate for so long, people, and I'm sure you remember the fine chocolate, you go to a little boutique store and you buy these beautiful mm-hmm. um, little truffles um, packaged in beautiful paper and wrapped in a bow and they maybe have, you know, almonds or other nuts or delicious creams and caramels. But the, the fine chocolate industry is, has really taken a turn um, to kind of to strip down what, what fine chocolate is. So, you know, we hear a lot the bean-to-bar business, and chocolate makers are um, making their own chocolate for, from scratch. Fine chocolate makers have um, mostly, so, so we're talking chocolatiers, um, they've mostly all gotten their chocolate from the same supplier. So what happens is, is um, the farmers pick the fruit, there are these giant um, pods that look like Nerf balls, and they... Um, take the seeds, which is what, you know, cacao is made from or or cocoa is made from and chocolate, and you dry them out and you have to process them. Um, And what's happened in the industry so far is that um, one company or a couple of, a handful of companies would actually make the chocolate and then sell the chocolate in bulk to chocolatiers who would make it. But now we're seeing companies like Dandelion in San Francisco 
um, make their own chocolate from scratch. So what they're doing is they're getting the dry cacao and they're processing it, and then they're making their own bars. And what's interesting is that we're seeing chocolate where there's only two ingredients in the bars. There's cocoa, there's cacao, and there's sugar. It's interesting because you start quoting how much some bars are actually going for. There's kind of a currency tied towards the quality. And I think at one point in your article, you refer to one bar could cost as much as $260, and it instantly sells out. Um, is this the industry basically trying to monetize, not monetize, but um, uh, bring in super high-end profits? Yeah, I think I think there, one of the things with this initiative is that it's it's really an effort from the fine chocolate industry to to um, do a little bit of new marketing and maybe um, sort of reinvent the profile of fine chocolate. And um, you know we've seen this in a lot of food industries. We've seen it in craft beer and we've seen it in wine. And I think coffee. Probably what what we've seen most in recent years is the specialty coffee yeah. industry, which is just booming. Um, and all of that has started, you know, for so long, people drank Folgers, and Folgers was good because that's what there was. Or, um, and, you know, and then Starbucks came along, and it's just gotten fancier and fancier, and then consumers start demanding better coffee. Um, you know, there's plenty of people who will say Starbucks is gross, but, you know, 10 years ago it was amazing coffee. So I think part of it is is retraining the palates of consumers to want better chocolate. Silly question. Is this a play on millennials? Because we keep hearing how every food company is trying to strip out salt. They're trying to strip out artificial flavors, They're trying to you know make it as organic as possible now because the millennials insist on it. Is a Hershey bar too trashy for a millennial? And is that why we're creating $200 chocolate bars? Um, huh. Well, I think, I think that, well, first of all, I think that things like Hershey bars, there's, you know, there's always going to be this nostalgia and a love for, for that kind of product. But I think a lot of it has to do with, um, people wanting to, um, live healthier lifestyles and eat, um, better. And obviously organic food is of big interest to everyone. Um, and, you know, a lot of it, I think, is, is we hear the buzz when it comes to diet of eating a diet that's clean. And I think that this is actually a really good example of it because you have companies that are making bars where there's, you know, complete transparency. There is like this is, you know, cacao and this is sugar and that's all you're getting. Um, so it's, it's kind of, uh, you know, a a reflection of the modern diet, but then also I think um, a reflection of kind of wanting to get back to the art and craft of, you know, producing a classic product. Is there anything else that you want to tell us about your article, Jessica? It's Jessica Ferger, staff writer at Newsweek. Why does your chocolate taste so bad? Anything, last insights? Well, I, you know, I'm, I cover mostly health, and I think it's probably worth pointing out that you know, a really good dark chocolate that's maybe, you know, 75% or higher in cocoa and low in sugar, that's, it's become a, a staple in, um, in health food stores. And it's, you know, it's a, it's a very good thing to have one or two ounces of chocolate. Chocolate has tons of antioxidants and uh, flavanols are um, really, you know, crucial for um, preventing, you know, damage on a cellular level and there's been studies that say that a couple of ounces of chocolate has the same amount of antioxidants as, a, as you know, some of the super fruits. Um, and chocolate is, you know, is a great treat, and it's good to prevent, you know, cardiovascular disease and cancer. So there's no reason to skip it. Sounds good. Thanks very much. It's Jessica Ferger with Newsweek. Um, that's a lot of information about chocolate. I myself grew up with a love affair of like Easter chocolate. I don't know about you, Tony, but I'm going nostalgic on you. Those little chocolate Easter eggs were so horrible. Um, I think they were aged like one minute kind of thing. And I don't know if you aged chocolate, but it just feels like, wow. But it was tasty. Yeah, I was always looking for that little nugget inside. I'm not, a, nougat. I'm not a big fan yet of uh, the idea of paying $260 for it.
bar of chocolate. Yeah, I was reading the article along with you, and that, that seems pretty outrageous. People can find out more by going to Newsweek. Um, and again, who doesn't like a good Twix bar, Milky Way, or M&M's? Reminds us of our childhood. Um, when you think chocolate, you think you know Hershey's, you think Mars, you think Lint, you think Sharpenberger. Um, Newsweek has a lot of great articles. Newsweek and Businessweek um, I like very much so. Um, IB Times, if you give it a chance, I think you'll find the IB Times very interesting. Um, I'm always real pleased with that. You can get your calls on the show today, 800-516-1220. It's 800-516-1220 to get your calls on the air. Anything that you want to talk about, we can talk about. Did you know Walmart averages a profit of about $1.8 million every hour? That's why you want to start a business. If that doesn't tell you why you want to start a business, I don't know what will. I've been talking a lot recently about income stocks and dividend stocks. And if you buy you know, 100 shares of Apple and it pays a 2.2% dividend, you have $100, or let's say you have $100 worth, and you get $2.20 for doing nothing. You have a side business that's creating income. It's called a portfolio. In this case, an income portfolio. I like the idea of paying yourself. I'm Rob Black, talking all things financial, money, investing, and more. Find us online at robblack.com. That's robblack.com. I'm Ron Black, talking money, investing, and more. 90% of Americans live within 15 minutes of a Walmart. That's crazy. This is a powerful company. Walmart's net sales of $482 billion last year. Not too shabby. That's more than Iran's GDP, and Iran's got oil money. Walmart has 2.2 million employees. That's more than the whole population of Houston. A lot of employees. For every one employee, 25 people try out for a job at Walmart. Crazy, right? Walmart were a country. It would be the 28th largest economy in the world. They are bigger than number two, three, and four put together in retail, i.e. Kroger, Target, and Costco. Combined, they beat them. Wow. Let's bring in CFP, Chad Burton, talk a little financial planning. Joining me now, CFP, Chad Burton, talking Money investing and much, much more. Mr. Burton, how are you? I'm just wrestling with the mic over here. I'm good. Yeah, that whole mic thing can be kind of tricky. Um, <laughs> Apparently, it's supposed to be in front of your face when you talk. Yeah, and you're supposed to put your lips almost on the microphone yeah. usually, which is something that very few people get for quite a while. Uh, with that said, there's different microphones and there's different investment products. D- different investment products, I think, is the thing that confuses most of our listeners out there. I remember the first time I approached at age 17, 18, you know, mutual funds. I found some nice Roberts and Stevens technology mutual funds, uh, which oh, I, I talked to. those guys. Those yeah. guys were the, the greatest small mid-cap managers back in the 90s. Fantastic. And that was uh, probably my first brush with greatness, so to speak. I just talked to the information director recently from the old Roberts and Stevens funds, because uh, that's the thing I like about LinkedIn. You can kind of see where people used to work. Right, right look back in time and go, how was it working with Dan Niles as a tech analyst? Like, things like that. And uh, I don't know. It was, it was. Is that where Dan Niles came from with Robertson Stevens? I, he did, little, he right did some work there. Yeah. Um, he went on to be much, much bigger than that. But, yeah, he's very forefront media tech analyst still. Yeah, and it's interesting that you say that because I, I, I don't see him as much as I used to. But then again, I don't watch as much financial media as I used to. Right. Uh, so I'm not watching Bloomberg as much. I'm definitely not watching CNBC as much. Uh, I guess I'm a little bit more digital financial media. Yep. So, I think a lot of people are. What, I mean, are some, what are some of your sources that you go to these days? Well, we have Bloomberg terminals, which are you know very expensive, so we get a lot of data through that. Um, we've had facts set in the past, so a lot of the stuff that advisors use mm-hmm. um, is you know more on demand. The information is there all the time. In terms of basic publications, I still love the Wall Street Journal. Yeah. 
briefing.com, page one, open reports, one of the first things I read. I've got, you know, Bloomberg on my phone, so I'm getting all the headlines alerts on that. Um, what Bloomberg? Morning Is it just the Bloomberg app? Just the Bloomberg app, yeah. Okay. I don't use that one. No, I love it. So. It's actually for one of the first things I do when I wake up is I have a whole bunch of alerts from Bloomberg in terms of article stories, what happened overseas, things like that. One of the things that's really interesting to me right now is you know the euro versus the dollar, the yen versus the dollar. Why is that interesting to you? Oh, because I think the opportunities overseas, the value is greater. The quantitative easing is just happening there where it happened five years ago here. Um, so there's a lot of potential for equity growth over there, but there's currency issues that you have to deal with. And um, so I think we're we're taking a little break on the dollar increase, but I think the longer trend, term trend is still dollar higher. I think parity or, or even less for the versus the dollar, um, but you can be wrong. So you got to follow that trend. You got to see if that 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 chart is going to continue in that direction. The reason why I say that is because we own some currency hedged ETFs that invest in. A lot of export-driven companies overseas, and it's done really, really well. But I want to know when to take the profits. So those are shorter-term, you know, six to twelve-month trades versus most of my investments were through three to five-year time horizons. Yeah, it's interesting that you bring that up because uh, I think we are in a world of quantitative easing, and you do get to the point where where do you turn next? As Europe accelerates, it sure there could be a, a dollar stronger play, as there could be an equity stronger play in Europe. Uh, but at some point in time. It's a, it's a currency race that, like, we're all trying to devalue. It's, it, it is pretty interesting. And, yes, it does appear that the United States is trying to change the easing. Mm-hmm. But a lot of people, a lot of smart people, a lot of smart people don't think it can happen. And that's an interesting, uh, I'm not going to say poker game, but it's interesting to watch. Because uh, you see billionaires, you know, coming out on financial media going, you know, we're at a top for Chinese stocks. We're at a top for U.S. stocks. We're at a top for, and then we're going lower. We're going higher. It's like, it's 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 tough for the average person. Which again, I come yeah. back to. Yeah. There's a lot of financial product out there, and that's one of the reasons I tell the average person: invest in your 401k, diversify it, go make love to your spouse. Yep. Yeah, I mean, you could pu- just pull up all the people that were talking about, you know, get out of the market in 2013, and how wrong they were. Or steer clear 100% of emerging market stocks or international stocks in 2014, and look what's advancing in 2015. So the the people that are all in, all out, the 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 big headline guys, they're just trying to make a name for themselves, be right once or twice, so they can get out there and get a little bit of traction. The ones to listen to are the more steady growers, the Warren Buffetts of the world, the the Bogles of Vanguard. You know, those are the guys that that get it right over the long term. Do you ever look at the Jack Bogle and go, eh, you're a little bit too old for financial media? Like, <laughs> you're, you're sounding like grandpa. Max out your 401k and go away and yep. diversify and low cost time in the market. I mean, the message is very repetitive. Yeah. But at the same time, who do you respect in any industry? It's the people that are passionate about what they do. The guy is extremely wealthy, yet he's still... Out there in financial media, he doesn't need to work. He doesn't. He hasn't needed to work for years and years and years, but he still cares about it a lot. And he's been right. I mean, you know, people that have been a part of the market consistently and haven't tried to get in and get out, those are the ones that win. CFP Chad Burton. You can find him at newfocusfinancial.com. That's newfocusfinancial.com. Eight hundred five one six twelve twenty to get your calls in the air. It's eight hundred five one six twelve twenty to get your calls in the air. Um, what do you think about sites like Zillow, Tony? I think it's a great uh, research site. A lot of people give them a hard time because uh, for a while they were giving out really bad valuations and people were counting on that to be their value. You know, home prices are up now. I, th- I think there's other resources you can go to, like your realtor and MLS. And uh, you can even go to a title company and get comps uh, to, to get your values. But Zillow also does a lot of uh, local research. Um, and they do it by zip code and by city and by county and by state and metro areas that you can get on rent. So as, as for an Example is an investor that say you were buying a, a property out of state, and uh, it would be one of the first places I went to to you know start a little bit of research on like what average rents are and what what does a two unit go for, and then you start looking at other websites like rent, um, uh, realtor.com, look at some home prices, and then look at some other properties and how much they rent for. So it's a great research place, and they put out a lot of good data. You can also follow your house and see what um, you know when it was, pr- how many times it's sold, and what the tax rates were, and um, it's also a, a, 
the one thing that it does do that I don't like, it's a big advertising tool for realtors and uh, other mortgage people and, and other banks. And um, they pay a lot of money to, to get leads from there because of the amount of traffic that uh, Zillow generates. So there's kind of a give and take there. Um, I don't. I use it every once in a while to do a little bit of research on rentals and and comparables, but that's about it. I look up my house every once in a while to kind of see what it's doing. What do you think about sites like Trulia? Uh, a very similar site. It's a little bit more t- tied towards the sales aspect uh, and, and listings of properties and, and realtor and, and, uh, and, and buyer kind of relationships. Um, still a lot of traffic going to these websites, so it's uh, also another marketing tool for uh, you know, agents finding leads. Any other websites that you use that might be helpful for the listeners? Uh, for buyers, um, I used to go to a place called mortgageprofessor.com because it helps you know, people understand the mortgage process if they aren't already reaching out to me and they want to do it on their own. Um, you know, other, other than that, there's you know, you, a lot of people should be checking out irs.gov. Um, you know, a lot of people are taking out money out of their house and they don't know how much they can write off uh, over and above their original tax basis. Uh, that's a great website to go to, uh, and they have a great search engine in uh, irs.gov. Um, I have other websites I don't have right offhand, but those, those are some that I would recommend. You tend to like uh, Robert Schiller. Robert Schiller. You yeah. tend to look at uh, an economist's view of uh, housing. The big story today, in my opinion, is interest rates, and that's when you start getting into – it's the big story of the year. Like, when do interest rates move higher? There's other little side stories here and there, but if this is going to be the year or is it going to be next year, and what will the ramifications be? Because when you move from a mortgage of 3.8% to a mortgage of 4.5%, you can afford surprisingly a lot less. And when the numbers are low, when the 10-year treasury is at 2.0% and it moves to 2.2%, that's that's a big move. 2 to 3 is a 50% move. 3 to 4 is a 33% move. So you start seeing like the, the math of it is much larger in the lower regions. Um, but again, no one's expecting panic. But uh, something we're all paying attention to. I'll say that. Yeah, there's uh, uh, as far as Schiller is concerned, he came out and, and talked about how he's he, he he's been he's a uh, Nobel Prize winner, economist, a Yale professor, and he's been known to uh, have a few predictions about um, bubbles. Uh, in this case, uh, he's already calling out places like San Francisco as a what they call bubble territory, uh, and he ties that towards a lot of emotion and and and, and exuberance is what he called it. His book was called Irrational Exuberance, and he he's now kind of coining a new phrase called anxiety uh, purchase. A lot of people are in anxiety that they don't have a house, and and that's also pushing up home prices in in some of these uh, metro areas. Uh, very interesting fellow to to follow, but he's done some good work in the past and made some interesting predictions. I'm Rob Black. You can find me at robblack.com. You can email Tony, Tony at BayAreaLoanSource.com. That's Tony at BayAreaLoanSource.com. Talking all things financial, money, investing, and more. I like to buy stocks. I like to buy indexes. A lot of the stocks that I own, I want them to have some sort of income tied towards them. Because I want my money to make money, even when I'm not working. Now again, that's where you have to start getting really cautious when you hear people like me talk. Other people's money, make your money make money, like those buzzwords. Ooh, I like that. Um, <clears throat> I was given a speech last night, and there was a 
two people in the back of the room that you could kind of see that they're trying to better their lives, but they're going about it the wrong way. There's a world marketing company that basically recruits low-income, low-educated people and gets them in a group setting and gets them to sign up and get their friends to sign up. And once you hear that phrase, get your friends to sign up, and you'll make money from when they make money, that's when it starts becoming, eh. That's when the flag should start going up big time. In this case, this world group, and I'm not saying their name correctly for a reason, because I don't want to get sued, sells just god-awful. The worst. I couldn't imagine a product that hurts people more than high-priced annuities. And it was interesting because Chad was talking about annuities and, like, you want a low-cost, no-fee kind of annuity. There's a company called Emeritus that if you're going to get an annuity, that's who to go through with. Don't go through John Hank. Don't go through an insurance company. Don't go through the big names. Don't go through your – don't have a broker sell it to you because they're going to make commissions on it. Um, and you only want annuities where you get put $100,000 in and it may pay you $2,000 a year, you know, kind of thing. Um, for 20% of your income portfolio. But this group, it's, and it's really, really sad because they prey upon people who, like I said, are very low financially educated. Um, be very, very careful with the promises and the things that you hear out there. And once they say, you know, phrases like, have your money make money, and you'll, you'll make money sitting at home. As soon as you start hearing those kind of things, run for the hills. 800-516-1220 to get your calls on the air. It's 800-516-1220 to get your calls on the air. I think there's always an opportunity to buy stocks um, or sectors that are maybe out of favor. You know, a lot of people wanted to buy oil two years ago. My friend Art, he uh, was like, I should buy oil. And uh, I was like, I'm going to sell all my oil stocks. Because he has this knack for picking the exact wrong time to buy. And then oil falls forty dollars, fifty dollars a barrel. Like he, I mean, he nailed it. The worst time to possibly do it. Um, but like, eh, I don't know. Like we have low price oil, and we see like OPEC saying that oil's gonna be low. You know, they're gonna keep output the same for the rest of the year. And you go, ooh, airline stocks. That might not work because airlines have had a great three years. You're looking for something that hasn't had a great three years. That's how you make money on Wall Street. Um, you look for assets that work over time, and then you look for assets that are on discount to cut down on the short-term risk, and then you accumulate those assets through your lifetime. 800-516-1220 to get your calls on the air. There's a company that I find to be very interesting, Google and McDonald's. I'll, I'll t- I talked about them both, and I'll, I can even throw in Starbucks. Starbucks is kind of starting to lose its momentum, its, its sway, with younger consumers, and younger consumers become middle-aged consumers, middle-aged consumers become old-age consumers. So on Wall Street, we pay attention a lot to the younger, you know, 18 to 25-year-old demographic. Google, McDonald's, and Starbucks all have a problem. Google's best days were when it was on the desktop search, not mobile search. Facebook dominates right now. So long live the king. Maybe the king has to pass his crown. McDonald's had its day when people didn't care how much sugar or how much, how much trans fats were in their foods. Now they do. And you're seeing that whole industry, you know, whether it's packaged food, things like Tony the Tiger cereal, it's like giving your kid poison. No, I'm not going to say poison. It's like giving your kid unhealthy food. And people under 35 today won't do it. They don't, less processed food, more organic. Now that doesn't mean yummy tasty food in all cases, but you're seeing more and more of a trend. So... Tony Mendez, Bay Area Lens Source. Um, year's almost halfway over. How's this year stacking up versus last year? A little slow. A little slow. Uh, yeah. Uh, refinances, uh, applications have gone down considerably. Uh, last week, it was just one week, we had 7% decrease in applications. Uh, I'm sorry, 12%. Um, overall applications, including purchases, were down. Uh, and kind of a sign of what happened with interest rates. So, we're you know, the whole industry is kind of keeping an eye on when the Fed's going to raise their uh, short-term rates and how that's going to affect the market and how that's going to affect interest rates uh, for mortgages. Um, I mean, ultimately, there, there's there's got to be some sort of catalyst to get things moving again. Uh, we just don't know what that is right now. Kind of keeping an eye on everything. 
What's a good 30-year mortgage going for now? Um, Freddie Mac has the conforming just around just below 4%. So is that high for the year or close to high for the year? It's going to hit the high for the year. Uh, our 10-year treasury right now is just over 2.41, which is the highest we've seen all year. In fact, it's going back to, I believe, maybe November or October of last year. It's the highest it's been. So I would expect mortgage interest rates to kind of follow the trend of the 10-year right now. We're, we're highly watching the 10-year. You know, Wells Fargo has averaged 17% returns for like a long stretch of time in the stock. That's pretty amazing. And Wells Fargo is obviously a big mortgage player. So, nice thing about margins. No matter what interest rates are, the banks will always make their margin. You can find Tony at, you can email him, Tony at barryloansource.com. You can find me online at robblack.com. You can find Chad Burton at New Focus Financial at newfocusfinancial.com. He's got a lot of good downloads, a lot of good downloadables there. So, check it out at newfocusfinancial.com. The views and opinions expressed by Rob Black and his guests are not necessarily those of the Wall Street Business Network, this station, its management, owners, or advertisers, and should not be construed as legal, tax, or investment advice. Always consult with the appropriate advisor before making any investment or financial planning decision. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.